Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Of the many attributes of a society in decline, none are more despicable than the degradation of speech, the inability to listen, the intent to smear and demonize so that others are not heard, the ideological delusion that leads us to believe such smears born of our lies and marketing spin. All of this is extremely dangerous and the epitome of evil because it erodes our ability to form community. In the end, our only hope is community expressed in the New Testament through the metaphor of table fellowship with the people we fear and despise. In Matthew, when confronted with this type of speech, Jesus demonstrates the only correct response. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 276 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Something we're all familiar with in contemporary culture is the ideological banter that we encounter on television. There's much to say about it, but one of the most disappointing aspects is the way in which people pick a side, demonize the other side and then make up arguments to justify their demonization of the other side. People's brains shut down, their ability to speak honestly is shut down, and anytime an opponent speaks, they just find a reason to discredit the opponent. It's demoralizing, it's intellectually dishonest, and of course, as we are beginning to see, it's destructive for the fabric of our communities. And something similar is happening here in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not as though we invented this behavior. No, by no means. When we talk about someone as being evil, you cast the ad hominem attacks against the individual because you don't want to actually engage with the ideas. You don't want to say, he's wrong because of X, Y, and Z. He's evil because of X, Y, and Z. And so you prejudice the argument rather than hearing the ideas. And this is what happens in so many discussions in our own time where people don't want to listen to each other. People want to speak, but they don't want to listen. They want to send a tweet, but they don't want to read something substantial. They won't actually entertain that they could be wrong. One way to make sure that you don't have to entertain the possibility of being wrong is just start from the outset that the other side is evil. Well, if I'm against them, then I must be good, right? And that's how you make sure that you're good is by ensuring your opponent is evil. And this is why, you know, you have personalities and groups demonized. And all sides of any argument 
everyone manufactures their demons. They manufacture their bad guys so that they can be the good guy. People want to be right, and they want to have the upper hand. And one of the ways that they can bolster that sense of self-righteousness is by identifying someone else as clearly being evil, and more specifically being the evil they were put here to oppose. It's not just the media we consume on television or in the radio, it's all over our news feeds on social media. In late antiquity, in the time of the writing of this gospel and the New Testament generally, the elite in the religious community would refer to Gentiles as evil, as unclean, as being from the devil, as being the ones to push back against, to exclude, to fight, and to be justified in doing so. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. Right out of the gate, Richard, we have a man who can't speak and who's demon-possessed. Clearly a reference to a Gentile. And why can't he speak? Because no one has taught him anything. Right. We need to understand the technical meaning of a demon in the ancient world, which was not just a spooky creature that floated around with a pitchfork. They were thoughts, they were niggling ideas that would lead one off the path of virtue. And so if someone is possessed by a demon, it means that they are out of their mind. Although, of course, we're talking about mind, we would talk about the heart, and the heart would be possessed by a demon. They would have an evil spirit, in other words, meaning their body was acting in a way, was animated by this controlling force that was having them do things against the proper teaching, against wisdom in the philosophical sense, but in the biblical sense, against the Bible, against Scripture. This person was not able to speak. He had no words to say because he was possessed by the wrong ideas, the wrong teaching. He needed to be taught. He needed to be filled with another word in order to have something to say. To reiterate a point that we have made consistently over the past several episodes, the encounter in verse 32 is the encounter between the teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the master, and someone who is possessed by a false teaching and is therefore unable to speak. So this isn't about the miracle per se. It's about the instruction that is going to give this demon-possessed man a word that he is able to speak. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Of course nothing like this has ever been seen, because who has ever taken the time to give the instruction of the Lord's commandment to a Gentile. And here, it's amazing, it is amazing, that after one encounter with Jesus, one encounter of study, of hearing the Word of God, he suddenly had something to say. In a way, it's a shame that the crowds were amazed, because why would they think a Gentile couldn't utter the words of Moses? What would ever give them that impression? Here they're amazed, and in fact, they should feel ashamed because they should have been doing this before. 
it's a shame that nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. I hope the audience is getting into the habit of being suspicious of the crowds when they're amazed, because just like you said, Father, there's no reason why they wouldn't have Gentiles speaking the words of Moses if only there were someone to teach them. In order to have someone to teach them, they would have to know the word of Moses. Lacking that, the Gentiles would have nothing of substance to say. And remember that Jesus is not primarily a healer. I just want to reemphasize this. Because Matthew reiterates this in every possible way he can think of, I'm going to repeat it in every way I can think of. Jesus comes to teach. Jesus is primarily a teacher with a word. He's trying to grant a teaching to those within earshot. As he does, people become healed. The word allows them to live properly. Those possessed by demons, those who are unable to speak or to hear, can finally speak and hear and walk because he brings this teaching to them. So remember, he's primarily a teacher, not a healer. So if you see Jesus and he's healing, he must be speaking a word. So let's talk about the word. Let's not talk about the healing. Let's talk about the word first and then the healing. The healing makes no sense if one loses the context of Jesus the teacher and Jesus the word. If you stop listening to Jesus, he just looks like a magic man making people healthy and able to do things that they couldn't do before. But if you listen to the teaching, you realize that this is a word that's available to anyone with an earshot of God's teaching. And at the same time, deal with the healings the way you deal with a car chase in an American movie. They are part of the plot. So in that sense, you have now a situation in verse 34 where everybody sees that Jesus healed the man. He cured him. And of course, it's the metaphor of speaking that's most critical technically, as you were just saying, Rich, but remains the fact that this man was sick and Jesus cured him, and everybody sees it, plain as day. So the evidence is incontrovertible that Jesus has done something righteous. And what do the Pharisees say in verse 34? It's just like watching CNN or Fox News. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Okay, so the Gentiles were involved, and now a Gentile is speaking. There's no way that we can acknowledge that anything good came out of the mouth of a Gentile. And why is Jesus mixing with Gentiles? Must be because he works for the demons and the ruler of demons. Come on. I mean, come on. This is the epitome of demagoguery. Because the Pharisees so conveniently didn't listen to what Jesus was teaching and were able to ignore the context of these healings, they could ascribe it to whoever they want and to whatever teaching they wanted because they're not hearing the teaching. And they take the chain of command and they turn it on its head and they say, oh, well, if you're casting out demons, it must be by the chief of the demons, right? They ascribe Jesus to this camp of evildoers. The members of the Dead Sea Scroll community used to call them the sons of Belial, the people on the other side, on the dark side, against the sons of light. And they're the ones who are fighting on behalf of the demons. Instead, the Pharisees should know that God is the ruler of all. So 
how could it not be if someone is on the side of God that they would have power over demons? That's the strange thing that for the Pharisees, it wouldn't occur to them that if you have a God of all, then that God is at the top of the chain of command and is able to do what he wants with any of the creatures, including the demons. It's because their reference is themselves and their community. Their reference is not the word that Jesus gave to the mute man. Their reference is not the word that the mute man spoke. Their reference is themselves. That's how they decide who's a son of light and who's a son of the devil. But that's incorrect. Their reference is incorrect, and therefore their conclusion is incorrect. But they happily embrace the false self-reference because it is emotionally and personally satisfying to cast shade on anyone associated with the Gentiles who are obviously evil. Verse 34 borders on hate speech because it's pointed against the outsider. Exactly, Father. It's pointed against the outsider, and it just sounds so much like the speech that we hear in our modern day. I mean, this is the way that you can not listen to what other people have to say. If you just say that so-and-so is a racist or so-and-so is a communist, then you're done with the conversation. You don't have to listen to them anymore. Couldn't they be saying something wise? Is it possible they could be saying something wise? No, you don't want to do the work of actually measuring the worth of the words and of the teaching that's coming out of their mouth. You want to preserve your community and have the emotional satisfaction of being right without actually doing the work of examining your own ideas and potentially being wrong. And so the Pharisees have no time to be wrong or for self-examination. Jesus continually accuses the Pharisees of not paying close enough attention to their words and seeing the own contradiction between their words and their actions. So the Pharisees do not have to do the hard work of introspection that's commanded in chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew. And instead, they can point and accuse and ascribe however they want, and they're acting like they're the chief of the demons because they get to say who's a demon and who isn't a demon, who's following the demons and who isn't following the demons, without ever thinking that they might be the ones possessed by a demon who do not even want the demon to be exercised from them. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are threatened not to judge. We are threatened with the consequences of passing judgment on others. There is one judge in the New Testament, and in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes it explicit that not even he can judge. But the Pharisees were saying here in verse 34, the Pharisees were passing judgment because they put their community and their person on the throne of Moses in the place of the Torah, and that is unacceptable. That only can lead to lies and cruelty and a kind of exclusive mentality that subverts the spread of God's teaching upon the earth which, as we discussed in the Gospel of Mark, is what the resurrection is all about, and the opening up of the tomb in which the Pharisees are trying to shut up the law. Because in a way, if God's teaching spreads outside of Israel, if people can receive this teaching without joining their community, and it's the teaching that's most important, 
their importance is diminished. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What I like about verse 35, Richard, is that despite the lies, despite the cruelty, despite the attempt at subterfuge, despite their efforts to tarnish the name of Jesus and to accuse him of being a demon or working for the ruler of demons or whatever, despite all of that, what's really beautiful is they cannot stop him. They can do whatever they want. He's going through all the cities and villages, and he is teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And everybody throughout all the world is being healed in the same way that this mute man was healed, which means that not only is Jesus still on the go, but even if they kill him, he will have created so many disciples that they won't be able to stop him. He's going around to all the cities and the villages and I find it fascinating that he doesn't respond to this accusation of the Pharisees. They say it's a prince of demons, and he just ignores them and just leaves. He doesn't leave with his tail between his legs. He leaves to all the cities and the villages and goes to the synagogues. And what does he do? He teaches and he preaches. Those are the first two things that he does. And then the third is healing every sickness and every disease. Why does Matthew need to say he's preaching and teaching? Because he's doubly emphasizing Jesus's primary role, which is to teach. He goes to the synagogues where the scroll is opened. He is bringing this word to all those around. Again, we have the kingdom. We haven't had the kingdom come up for a little while. Jesus is the ambassador of this kingdom, and he's coming and proclaiming that this king is coming, and anyone who wants to be a citizen of this kingdom must follow the law. And then he tells them and reminds them what the law is. He's not responding to his critics who are saying, oh, he's just following the demons, doesn't even respond. He continues along his way to teach. He is not impressed by the fame that went out when he healed the dead girl. He's not impressed by all the people that the blind men blabbed to about how wonderful Jesus was. He's not impressed by the Pharisees and their accusations. He doesn't pause. He continues to go out to all the cities and villages. This is his job, is to continue teaching. And after going through Holy Week and Holy Friday and thinking about the sacrifice that the gospel impels all of us, to make, which is to put our own lives in the line for the sake of teaching the gospel, Jesus doesn't even worry about getting tired and about too much travel and this and that. He just goes and he does the work. People critique him. People disobey him. People misunderstand him. It doesn't give him an excuse to stop at any time. He must continue the work because it's not about him. He put his ego to the side. He's not impressed by those who would like to fill his ego or to crush his ego because his ego is immaterial. The teaching is all that's material, and so he must spread it as much and as quickly as he possibly can. I really love your point, Richard, about verse 35, that he simply didn't respond to their, you know, bad-mouthing him. It reminds me very much of the Gospel of Mark. This really is very similar to the Mark and Jesus in 
his impatience in verse 35. I don't have time to debate with you. And that's not the first or the last time we'll have this in Matthew as well. I don't have time to debate with you. There's work to do. So I'm going to keep moving. My answer to you is to create more disciples. The only time he does engage with any kind of debate with the Pharisees is in order to make a point, a very specific point, and then he moves on. We don't get to hear if the Pharisees respond to that point because he moves on. Because he's speaking for our sake. He's not speaking for their sake. That's the point. Yeah, he's trying to teach the crowds. He's trying to teach the disciples. He's not trying to teach the Pharisees. And if only we could understand that in our own debates. Can you imagine on CNN, some big debate, and some famous person is called to the debate and says, I don't have time to debate. I'm writing a book. Nobody would do that because they want to get publicity for their book. So they go online. They want to convince their critics that they're right. No, Jesus is not about convincing his critics. Jesus is about teaching those who are untaught. Those then may misuse his teaching, but he has no right not to teach them. Those who are opposed to him, he's not going to bother with, unless by engaging with them, he can teach his own students. Don't address the critics. Teach. And if people won't listen to you, Find other people who listen to you. There's always another town and another village that you can go to where there's a possibility of new students. Don't waste your time on people who already are trying to tear you down. Jesus would not accept a guest spot on CNN, so he wouldn't even be in the position of having to respond because he's not interested in book sales and fame. He's interested in the work, which does not require a big network that's driven by profit. I mean, it's amazing that Jesus is just going person by person to teach them. I'm amazed at this old world way of putting things together. My daughter was telling me a story about how in the Balkans she was trying to sign up for a class, but the only way to sign up for a class was not to go on the website or on the Facebook page. She had to talk to somebody who knew somebody who knew the teacher then she could ask the teacher if it was okay to join her class. In the process, she learned how to get along with people and how to talk to people by going and talking to individuals person by person and teaching that way, more importantly, with the gospel and with this teaching. I mean, I know a group that does missionary work, and the way they do it is they make friends with people, and they have coffee with people. They teach, and if people don't want to hear the teaching, talk about sports. Don't waste your time. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.